Welcome to OWASP 24-7, sponsored by the Open Web Application Security Project, improving the security of software. With support from Sonatype Nexus, providing automation and scale to open source component security. Additional support provided by CatScan from Proactive Risk. Hey, thank you for coming after lunch. I know the biorhythms are a little bit low after lunch, so we'll try to get you picked up a little bit. I am Mark Miller. I am the senior storyteller and the DevOps advocate at Sonatype. I also run the OWASP 24-7 podcast series. How many people are part of OWASP? Just curious. Oh, good. I'm the podcast guy. So uh, we'll be in Washington, D.C. next week, too. If you're, not, if you're going to be over in the States, AppSec USA is happening next week in D.C., which is kind of fun. But today, what we're going to talk about is DevSecOps. And I've got two people up here that I speak with quite a bit that I enjoy talking to, so I invited them to come and talk to you about what they're doing, what they see the future of DevSecOps is, and then during the whole presentation, it's open for discussion too. I've got a mic floating around, so if they say something you would like to comment on, you can just raise your hand and jump in and part of the conversation. First, for introductions, I'd say, say hi, Shannon. There we go. Interaction already, right? So I want Shannon to introduce herself a little, tell you a little bit about herself. Michael, I'm not hearing anything from her. I just want to make sure you got it. Go ahead, Shannon. Check, check. There okay, there go. we go. <laughs> Hi, everybody. I'm Shannon Leitz. I'm the DevSecOps leader at Intuit um, and founder of DevSecOps.org. Um, you know, several years ago, if you had told me that I'd be sitting on this stage talking to you about changing how we do DevOps plus security, I would have told you you were kind of crazy. Um, I'm a security professional by trade and one that's been converted to the dark side according to my industry. Um, I'm collaborative. I like to help people and teach them and bring them along and run experiments and run agile and lean. So I'm here today to talk to you about what that's like and uh, answer some of Mark's questions. Good. Thank you. And Chris. So good afternoon, folks. I'm Chris Swan. I'm CTO for Global Infrastructure Services at CSC. Uh, and you might be wondering, so what has that got to do with security? Well, of course, security is part of everything that we do. Uh, but previously, I was CTO for a cloud networking and security company, Cohesive Networks. Uh, and then going back a bit further, I did security at both of the large Swiss banks. So I've kind of got security running through my veins a bit. Nice. The, just to, to get things started, uh, to level the playing field here, now, you own DevSecOps.com, right? Yes. Right. Where did the name DevSecOps come from? What is that about? Yeah, it's a good question, actually. <laughs> um, so there was a belief a few years ago that um, DevOps was becoming a big thing. And um, you know, I think from the security side of things, we were a little bit behind, almost a decade, actually, right? So security prof professionals all of a sudden started to realize, well, we're doing AppSec, but really... AppSec was so much bigger when you looked at things from the SecOps side. Um, I've been practicing application security, security operations for a long time, and so there were a bunch of folks that decided that we were going to basically start to red team our companies because the scanners that we were using weren't necessarily finding everything that we thought was important. 
we also realized that the um, way in which we were getting security information into our logs wasn't necessarily the best either. And so DevSecOps came to bear because of DevSec plus SecOps, and so you got a whole mishmash in between. And we realized that we needed to support the DevOps trade, otherwise um, security was always going to become an impediment to the DevOps trade. And we really believe that innovation was key to our organization and to other organizations out there. So that, that's really how it came to bear. Chris, one of the things that I've been hearing recently, and you and I haven't talked about this yet before, but uh, I've heard that security is where ops was five years ago as far as being able to talk to developers. Now we got developers and ops talking to each other, but security is still three to five years out to be part of that pattern. Agree, disagree? I think it is a process, and I think, yeah, there's, there's a bit of latency going on there. Part of the problem is if you look at just the, the size of the respective organizations, uh, there tends to be a 50-50 split in most organizations between people doing dev and people doing the ops to support that. And the security team is like 10% of the size of you know, the, the whole. So it's a, a much lower ratio of individuals to get involved with that piece. I, I think also with DevOps, there was allowed for a time at least to be a myth that security and DevOps weren't compatible with each other. And it's taken time to squash that myth and to start to get the story coherent around actually, you know, not only is security something that you can do as part of DevOps, but turn it around and start asking the question of how can I do my security properly without embracing DevOps practices across the rest of my organization? So you know, rather than seeing DevOps as something that's taking you away from security, actually seeing DevOps as something that's the enabler of better security. You know, it, from the perception of people trying to get work done, security is always perceived as an impediment. As somebody that's getting in our way, again. Yeah, you know, um, I remember a few years back, uh, security's always been lagging, right? Developers come to you and say, I want my approval to go live. And if you're doing continuous delivery, they just stop coming and asking you for approval. They just start pushing the button, and then all of a sudden, they're just live in production, right? And so as a security professional, there's really not a great place for you to be in the path of the development process. In the SDLC, you know, security people for as long as I can remember, around 10, 15 years now, and boy, does that date me, um, have been struggling to figure out where do we insert security into the pipeline so that we can shift left on security being built in. And when I think about that process, it's really become where do we actually insert the friction? And I say that very deliberately because that's what security is being believed to be, is it's a friction. Well, the truth is, is that security is a constraint. And um, it's one of those constraints that needs to be at the time of ideation, meaning when you have the idea, if you're not actually inventing it to be secure from the start, then ultimately as you progress and implement that along the path, it's going to ultimately become less and less secure over time. So the idea is how do we actually get developers and operations teams to be able to build security into their capabilities, into their ideas? You have to have the notion of abuse cases, you have to be able to reduce that friction, and you gotta kind of get them thinking about their 99% is really about features and their customers, but they also have to have their 1% figured out, which is the approval you keep granting them is about basically blessing whether or not 
they're going to be resilient to attack cases and abuse cases? Well, the truth is, is that your approval means nothing in that context because you really don't even know whether or not there's going to be abuse and you aren't sure where it's going to necessarily take place. So what I would say is the way to cure it is really to talk about how do we get folks to understand how their software is going to get abused and make it more resilient. Great, thanks. Just kind of asking everybody there, how many developers have we got? Very few, good. How many ops people? Good. How many security people? Yay! <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Chris, uh, taking this to a different uh, level here, one of the things that you and I have talked about over the last 24 hours a couple times is the idea of patch management becoming a shadow organization. Not becoming, is a shadow organization in many places. Yeah, this was a realization I came to uh, a couple of weeks back. So I was uh, spending some time with a financial exchange and you know, they were looking at the security implications of moving more of what they're doing to cloud computing. Uh, but you know, their reason to move more of what they're doing to cloud computing was also an embrace of DevOps. So they wanted to be able to deliver new functionality out into the marketplace much quicker than they're able to at the moment. And they're kind of caught right now in that, that classic thing of you know, they're, they're struggling to do quarterly or even annual release of product. Um, and so you know, an awful lot of functionality then builds up into that. When it gets put live, you know, you've got a lot of bugs to shake out. So you know, a classic DevOps split within their organization. And we kind of hit the question of, well, how are you going to be able to deploy security fixes in your code unless you've got the ability to deliver quickly into production? And that was a bit of an aha moment for them. And they were like, oh, <laughs> how are we getting by at the moment? And that led me on to thinking, well, how are they getting by at the moment? And you know, the truth is, at the moment, most organizations have built these very rigid, unchanging infrastructures and put a lot of obstacles in the way of making changes to those. But you still have to put security patches into production. So we've kind of now grown an entire shadow organization which has got its own inventory and its own discovery and its own configuration management database and its own set of processes. And we call this thing patch management. And it exists solely for the purpose of being able to deliver things quickly into the production environment. And you kind of go, well, hey, I want a bit more of that, really. I want to be able to patch manage everything I put into production, not just patches. And, and that would get me to the place I'm going where I can actually deliver functionality quickly into production, not just security fixes. Um, but I think at the same time, you know, the, the existing infrastructure and the patch management piece of that becomes an obstacle to this process. So you know, the scar tissue of the organization gets in the way of making some of the necessary changes. And you know, that's what makes that change tough. Anybody recognize that? Do you oh, yeah. I saw you guys talking to each other. Going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's the, it's the antibodies, right? So a security professional raises a risk, and the antibodies kick in. And what I mean by antibodies is somehow there's a scar, a wound, something that has to get healed over, and ultimately those antibodies make it so that it gets healed over as quickly and as, as efficiently as possible. The truth is, is that if you have a gusher in the middle of your development process, you need to be able to fix it in the middle of your development process, meaning the people who created it need to know how not to create it in the first place. 
And if you aren't testing those skills, then ultimately you're creating other people outside of what's being developed and making that part of their process. Did you guys have a question for them? Anything? No? Okay. Janie, just making sure. Anybody questions so far? We'll we take love them right questions, <laughs> by the way. I know that it's not necessarily a norm, but feel free to start asking. You see, in the United States, everybody would be jumping up and down now, screaming for the mic. This is a whole different... Wrestling. Please, Janie, we got somebody here. He's from the States, by the way. <laughs> Close. Hi. Uh, my name is Lubo, coming from the Medway NHS Foundation Trust. Um, we're currently facing the challenge that you guys are talking about. How do we establish this relationship between dev, ops, and security? Because... I feel like I'm a man in the middle trying to link all these teams up and I want to work with everyone, but we're kind of like in the beginning of stages of what you're talking about. So what are the basic steps to get somewhere? Okay. I'm wondering, does the Phoenix Project deal with this in a way or do you want to take yeah, it in a different route? I think the Phoenix Project does deal with it. So if you haven't read that book, you should. How many As people a, have read the Phoenix Project? As a security practitioner. Please, that's one for your notes if you haven't read it it's yet. It's absolutely imperative to read it because it's a great way of understanding more about the relationship yeah. between the teams. But I'll, I'll try and tackle it too because I remember a few years back where security honestly was light, lagging and latent in the organizations I've worked in. And um, latent and lagging means approval, right? So you've got a development right. team who's going to the go-go meeting not the go-no-go, no go, but the go-go meeting. Um, and I like to wear my go-go boots to those. Um, and so basically what I would tell you is uh, it starts by where do you put your security work? Is it on a spreadsheet? Is it in a document, an email, or whatever it is, right? When we find bugs, the red team that I run at Intuit basically um, delivers those into the JIRA backlogs for our development teams. If you really want to get a conversation started, if you want to be bold and you want to actually get the process and the relationship engaged, put something into somebody's backlog. It's now their problem. And you're now an expert that can help them with their problem. Meaning they're going to ask you all about what they need to know to be able to deal with those things. And I've also seen the security industry actually make a mistake in this regard. It has been um, very normal for people to think that they're going to turn scanners on and deliver those items directly into a backlog and somehow they're going to create the relationship through that. And I would tell you that's absolutely the wrong thing to do. The way to actually do it is to have all of that information sifted and sorted and create high fidelity, actionable things that are delivered into a backlog so that your credibility goes way up. And so as a security professional, delivering high-fidelity actual work into that backlog means that you now have the relationship to talk. And it's an amazing difference than just simply turning your scanners on and basically spraying those into backlogs so that they have thousands of things to basically close. And by the way, they love the bulk close feature for security issues. But when they become high-fidelity, you now have a relationship not only with your developer, but their manager, their manager's manager, all the way up to your board and um, audit committee. And that's a really important thing to realize is that the credibility of a security practitioner is all about what we produce and the high fidelity nature of those things. So I would say that's how you build the relationship is one of trust 
and the other, and I don't mean trust like, hey, I got your back, buddy. It's, hey, this is actually something you need to worry about as opposed to let me give you something that's a best practice coming out of a scanner directly. And the other thing that we do is we actually, in our um, work items for security, is at the very top we tell you whether or not it's a defect, and we put in the remediation item at the very top. So we tell you exactly the steps that you need to take to close it. We're very descriptive. We put all the information about the cool thing we found, but that's all the way at the bottom, so if you really care. And we don't tout that we broke into your stuff at the very top of that. We actually tell you how to fix it. Chris, where, where does automation, you, or you can take it the way you want to, but where does automation fit in when you're talking about that kind of system? So I wanted to start out talking about culture change. And you know, as I took this job, I kind of said to my boss, you've got to have read the Phoenix Project so that we've actually got some common language between us. And you know, he had read it already, so great. And, and actually, you know, we've found since, he's, he's come back from meetings with CIOs, and he's like, oh, this meeting was going terrible. And then I mentioned something out of the Phoenix Project. And he was sort of, oh, you read the Phoenix Project too? I love that book. And they managed to then have a common dialogue and start you know, talking about stuff we could do together. So one of the things that emerges from that is you have to change the organization. You have to change the culture in the organization. And I'll kind of go back to my favorite definition of culture here, which is the way we do things around here. And you know, Shannon's giving a really concrete example of you know, if you start putting stuff into the backlog, yeah, that, that might seem pretty straightforward, but you're changing the way things work around here. You're changing the culture of the organization. So the DevOps handbook's just about to be published. It's essentially some of the same characters that brought you the Phoenix project in the first place, but it's now kind of the how-to cookbook of, you know, we've set the scene with you know, an interesting respin of the goal and a, you know, a more kind of novel-like read of here's what you should be doing. Now it's kind of down to the brass tacks of the practical steps. And actually, you can get the first few chapters as a free download already, um, you know, which will probably fill the gap between now and when it actually gets published, which is, I think is only like next week or something. So that's, that's good guidance. But ultimately, I, I talked already about this organizational scar tissue. You've got to start cutting through it. And I, this is where it comes back to automation. I've had a few kind of go-rounds now uh, bringing automation into organizations. And one of the hardest parts of that is moving past the human frailties and really reassessing how we do things. So if you get the automation to just repeat what the humans are doing at the moment, and especially if you make the automation keep on having to operate within the same limitations as the humans do at the moment, you're not going to achieve very much from that. If I go back to my banking days, it's like every war story of something that had gone wrong ended with, and then they took out the trade floor. And yeah, an example I could pick on here is, you know, we had somebody who was doing some SAN reconfiguration. They fat-fingered it. The entire SAN in New York went down we lost the, the whole afternoon. And it's like, once these things take out the trade floor, you know, the clock has started ticking, and you're losing like roughly a million dollars a minute. So it's like, tick, 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 tick. So that's really, really bad. And when these things happen, everybody's like, let's make sure that that never, ever happens again. 
that's a fine sort of aspect of risk management. It's like, let's not let things that are making us lose tens, hundreds of millions of dollars happen on a frequent basis. But what happens then? Well, you say, okay, I'm never going to allow anybody to change a SAN configuration during trading hours. And then you find, well, trading hours run from when the markets open in Asia Pac through to when they close in the US. So that's like the whole of your working week plus an overlap into the weekends. So you can now only change SAN configurations in the middle of the weekend. <laughs> and you find that this happens for everything. So it's like same thing happened for a router one day, same thing happened for a switch another day, same thing happened for an HA cluster. In the... So all of these things stack up. And you find that the ability of your organization to change has just ground to a halt because you've got these kind of few-hour change windows in the middle of weekends. And they're the only place that you can get stuff done. And then you've got the change board sort of going, well, I don't want to do too much change at once because it's risky. Um, so we'll do the sand change one weekend and the database schema the next weekend and the HA pair the weekend after. And now your, your trivial change that somebody was doing in the middle of the trading day has gone out to being a month. When you get to the automation, you have to kind of go, okay, we put these barriers in place because of human frailty, because people fat finger stuff. Are we going to trust the robot? And sometimes when I'm presenting about DevOps, I use some DevOps Barat tweets, and it's like, you know, to make error is human and to take out the entire data center is <laughs> DevOps. But if you, can, if you can get confidence in the automation that it's not going to take out your entire data center and that it is safe to use during the working day, then you're really starting to win because you know, you're getting back to what you had before of, I want to change, I can do my change right now, not I want to change, I can book it in for you know, next February. You know, we were at dinner last night talking about organizational change and what it takes to do what we're trying to do here. And you brought up something very interesting, is the dichotomy between business objectives and what DevSecOps is trying to do. Yeah, so imagine that you have financial reporting, right? You're a public company, and you have to figure out how to get things committed and delivered. And then you have an organization that basically is relatively creative, doesn't necessarily subscribe to dates. They've got maybe six and a half sprints per quarter that happen for you to deliver something. And you're at the top of the organization. You're an executive. How do you get the trust in your, exec in your executive commitment that that's going to get done by your DevOps crowd that basically is chasing the answer with your customer? And what's interesting about it is that all those folks that are subscribing to being able to do DevOps need to be able to deliver against something. But they're going to learn along the way. And they're going to learn about things that the customer wants and that you may not have subscribed to in your executive commitments. And so that becomes really challenging because it means that executives need to find a way to trust that the things that they're committing are going to get delivered. And so ultimately, you have to find a way between how work gets planned at the very top, that's strategic planning, and how it actually evolves and gets created through this process of learning in the bottom part of your organization. Eric Rees put it pretty well in his uh, discussion about lean startup. 
uh, the notion of lean startup, he said lean wasn't going to necessarily make it its way into the world when um, companies didn't understand how to invest in it, they didn't understand how to organize against it, they didn't understand how to plan against it. And so he wrote an entire book that basically talks about how do you bring the top down and the bottom up? And how do you have them talk about these things as part of the everyday conversations? There's two or three things that have to happen. One is your decision process. So if you can imagine, are you making a decision for the entire company against a quarterly commitment? Can we slow down just a second on that? Because that's yeah. huge. The way DevOps is set up now is that DevOps is making decisions that affect business decisions. And that's not part of the plan. Yeah, so you're going to find that DevOps um, is all about building and creating things in line, right? And so you're going to see that they're maybe making decisions about how they're going to deal with a customer need as part of the software development process, right? Well, that's actually quite often a business decision. And it's a business decision quite often that gets done and dealt with in line. That means that all of a sudden that executive who thought they were making decisions for the business now had an inline decision in the process that's taking place. And so what I was saying is that your decision process, how you actually categorize and classify decisions, and how you actually raise those up from the everyday work to the quarterly planned work is really important. So you do that through basically having a decision process, identifying those decisions in line and being able to coordinate them with your executive management. Sometimes you have engineers talking to your executives through this type of process. And that's ultimately to make the best business decision you can for the software you're building in line. And there that are other things that have to be. That would be an interesting discussion now. Yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of di dichotomies yeah. through this that, that happened ha uh, along the way. But from a decision process perspective, if you're making those decisions, you could be affecting millions of dollars of revenue in line. And they talk about this in supply chain management. It's called the Andon cord. Something's wrong in the supply chain. I need to get help, right? You pull the Andon cord. And all of a sudden, in line in that supply chain, everything grinds to a halt. So you can make a decision both short and long, in line. And then all of a sudden, you're putting things back in place. But the challenge is, is that in software development, we don't necessarily have the ability to affect those things in line every day. And quite often, companies put in things called escalation processes. So if you're a security professional, my day is hell. My day is filled with escalation all day long. I am friction to the business. Right? Every day, all day long, friction to the business. If you can imagine, that means every hour of every day with 4,500 developers, something's happening. The on-don cord is getting pulled all day long. Right? And there's one person in my company, I wish I had 10% security professionals, but one person. I was going to say 10%. That's a lot, wow. man. Um, <laughs> there's a gap of 3.5 million security professionals in the industry as of next year. So 1% in my company and the Andon cord's getting pulled like it's no tomorrow, right? Something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong. And, and so security is one of those feedback mechanisms that you have to figure out because if it's actually happening that frequently, it means it's not getting built in. It means that people are actually struggling. It's getting to an implementation state. It may even be getting out the gate. And so you've got to figure out how to provide things like libraries that are safer. We have a security index. We spend time researching these um, libraries and components ahead of time so that developers can actually pick things up off the shelf so I can slow down the Andon cord. Um, and it's really important to have those processes. 
Chris, one of the things that I laughed at about an hour ago, you said you found a tweet that compares Agile with Waterfall. Yeah, so and this was something my friend Paul Downey, who works for uh, Government Digital Services, had tweeted like last February, but somebody else had just kind of rediscovered it and was tweeting it on my way in. And he said, yeah, Agile is where you make stuff up as you go along, and Waterfall is where you make stuff up at the beginning and live with the consequences. And so when we were talking about this, I'm kind of saying, so if what you're trying to do is achieve stability from you know, a fi financial management and risk management perspective, then which is worse? Is it the uncertainty that comes from making stuff up as you go along? Or is it the uncertainty that comes from consequences that you never anticipated? Because if you'd anticipated them, you'd have put them into your perfect plan at the beginning, and you'd have been able to route around that. And I, I don't think there's actually a clear answer to this. And so, yeah, on the one hand, it, it does kind of just make, a, make out that this planning for certainty and trying to deliver to Wall Street analyst expectations is, is a stupid game to be playing in the first place. And some of the leaders in the industry I admire the most are the ones that have just kind of gone, nah, not playing your game, Wall Street. You know, Jeff Bezos is a fantastic example of this. And I, one of the reasons I you know, ended up investing in his company is because I spotted that Wall Street didn't get him. And so at times, Wall Street were undervaluing what Amazon was doing. And so obviously, that was a good opportunity to buy. But the, part of what he's done there is addressing this question around decision-making as well. So he had this in uh, a report earlier this year that went out to his shareholders. And he talked about splitting up between P1 decisions, uh, sorry, type 1 decisions, type 2 decisions. So a type 1 decision was a potential company destroyer. It's like, you mess this one up, uh, so long. One-way and two-way gates. Yeah. Can you walk through the door and come back through it? Or can you only walk through the door and then you're stuck with it? But the point he was making to his shareholders was, if you look at most organizations, they treat every decision as a type one. So you've got kind of over-governance of trivial decisions. And that's another thing that yeah. slows them down. Yeah. And, and it's kind of, again, if we look at this scar tissue that's in the way of getting to this kind of DevSecOps world that we're trying to achieve, a lot of the time it's governance processes that are there to save the company from the company destroying decisions, but are over-applied to every trivial thing that you're trying to do. You know, uh, just to bolt on to that, I, I was watching, I, I frequent TED, the TED Talks. Anybody seen those? Great. Um, there's actually one in particular that I'm very fond of, very inspiring. It's called The Future of Learning. It's by Sagatra, Sagata Mitra. And um, just amazing. What he talks about is that our business world ha was originally constructed so that there was control at the top to make decisions about how work was going to get done in a predictable manner. And so our schooling system was actually built to be able to make it so that people could get work because they were consistent. And their consistency allowed them to be able to be moved around an organization and re-leverage. So we taught them reading and writing and arithmetic and everybody was constructed to do things the same way. To well, be we, predictable. we batch process them through it, schools. Exactly, <laughs> we do. We batch process people through schools. And then as we have actually seen computers come into the world, right, 
we started to do the same thing. We said, we're going to teach you a programming language. You're going to do it the same way every single time. I remember when I first went to school for computer programming, I had already been a programmer. I was just a very creative one. And I remember going through my computer programming course, and I decided that I was going to leave school in the middle of university because I was basically told that my programs were not consistent. Somebody else couldn't reproduce them. They were too creative. And that, to me, told me that I was in the wrong field. I still stayed in the computer industry. I'm what you consider a creative, a creative security professional, creative technician. And that means that my stuff is not necessarily always reproducible. But it does mean that I am totally dedicated to the experimentation and technology that we have to produce. And by the way, there are many more like me, which means we're starting to break out of our mold. We are actually starting to get to the point where consistency isn't necessarily the key. Innovation is the key. And we've got to find a way to be able to collaborate with each other and pull out the creative ways in which we can solve something so that we can help our customers with their problems. And I really do believe that that's worth actually watching because he was totally an inspired man. Um, he started something called the School in the Cloud, and uh, he's got something called the Soul uh, Toolkit. And if you haven't seen it, you absolutely need to because it's just an amazing um, understanding of what it takes to get the right kinds of ideas out of people so that we can get to the next generation of learning and capabilities. Great. We're about halfway done with the session here. Jeannie, are you ready with the mic? When you came today, what did you hope we were going to cover? Did you have a question in mind that you were hoping? Anybody? Let's, let's open up a little bit of discussion. You're part of the session too, Come folks. On. Come on. You've got your own experiences. <laughs> We'd love to hear about them. I know I came to learn from you just as much as I was hoping to share. Please, Jeannie, can we? Uh, your name and uh, what your company does. Hi, uh, Kir Yakic. I'm a freelance project manager, Good. but uh, I worked recently uh, on uh, with a client trying to deliver DevOps change. Uh, big business, I won't tell you who they were. Um, and we got really far through and everything was great and it looked like they were going to buy it and they turned back at the last minute. And I think we faced a, a challenge uh, and we sort of advocated everything that we've been talking about here, uh, but maybe fell a bit short in terms of being able to report data or, or get the ball rolling to show and build that trust with the executive level. Um, and so they're kind of in the same state they were and will continue to be in for a while. I, I just, I, I desperately want to kind of get more of an understanding of the practical techniques for building that trust with the top level because Good. if these yeah. people are batch processed throughout the business, I guess the business sees that it's such a big change that if they start it, there's really no way back. Maybe they, they can't see far enough ahead. I, just, I saw that as like a massive blocker. We were, talking, we were talking a little about sort of bottoms up versus top down yeah. type approaches earlier on and yeah, a lot of what we're trying to do in DevOps looks like bottom-up, but I just want to address the top-down. So you know, when I'm telling a story of why our customers need to adopt cloud computing, for example, then it, it starts out with, well, actually, you know, they don't want a cloud. They want a more agile business. They want to be able to adapt to customer needs faster because we can clearly see at the moment that's how organizations win in the competitive landscape that we now operate in. Uh, I think Netflix has showed a brilliant example of this. You know, they've built an organization that just adapts to customer need. And it happens to be customer need around videos. 
Uh, but you, you can kind of take that template and apply it to pretty nearly everything. And then an agile business drives a need for agile software, and then ultimately agile software drives a need for an agile infrastructure, and that's why they, they need some cloud. And that feels to me like a very business-driven, top-down conversation. And I think actually the people that are the senior decision makers need to understand that that's what they're doing. And sometimes it's part of a portfolio management exercise as well. So a great part of the business, they might want to be keeping stable, business as usual, it's their cash cow, let's you know, keep on milking that and you know, just optimize the heck out of that. But a piece of the business, which is normally where they're trying to do innovation, trying to be a little bit more leading edge, is where you have to have this more agile approach. And so I think if you talk to people about that being a portfolio management exercise, and it's kind of, yeah, sure, keep this bit you know, on the steady course, don't really need to change very much about it, but this bit, you need to manage differently. And I also want to avoid talking about falling into the bimodal trap here because you know, the, the Gartner folk will say, okay, these are polar opposites and you should create two different sub-organizations to deal with that. And I think that that's absolute bunkum. That actually the skill for the leaders here is managing the middle. It's managing the transition from tomorrow's innovation to today's activities to yesterday's stuff that you've done already and you need to make repeatable and cost-effective. And so, you know, that top-down conversation becomes about building that portfolio and building the processes to move things through the portfolio as they age and to, to keep on evergreening the new stuff as well. So... Bottoms up. Dev, DevOps practitioner. I've been disruptive most of my career. So top-down, love me, right? The reason why I've been relatively successful at working with the top down, the executives, is because I bring facts, I walk through the process, I work to educate, but most importantly, I've actually gone out and gotten educated about the things that they're concerned about. So as an example, if, you're, if you've read the Harvard Business Review um, article on Horizons, there's actually the notion of H1, H2, and H3 um, types of software that you might be building. Uh, and so organizations always have projects that are mature projects. They have up-and-coming projects, and then they have their emerging projects. And they invest in those projects a certain way. And if you understand what kind of project you're dealing with, you ultimately have the ability to influence the right way. If you can imagine being disruptive, if you're trying to disrupt an H1, you've got to do it very differently than an H3. Your emerging business, the way you disrupt that, is very different than how you actually deal with a mature business line that may be worth billions, millions of dollars, and something that might be up and coming, emerging, and only worth a few hundred thousand dollars. 
the way in which you're going to invest as a business leader is going to be very different into those two scenarios. But for your business to thrive long term, that emerging capability is ultimately what you're hoping and investing in for your long-term continued growth over time. And so you have to have DevOps practitioners and DevSecOps practitioners that understand that top-down management. You have to understand that on a quarterly basis, your organization is reporting financial earnings. And they're reporting how they're making decisions. And so if you can coordinate around that, and you can bring other people to that puzzle with you, and you can ultimately lead them forward, you find a way to actually very quickly have the ability to get confidence and trust from your leadership that the things you're doing are helping them with their commitments. And so that marriage between the two is really, really critical. And when we didn't have it, we were just disruptive punks. And when we started to actually work on that relationship between executive management and us disruptive punks, we got a lot more credibility. We have the ability to basically get people to understand that the things that we do every day are really important. I lead the red team, which is about as unpredictable as you can get. I find and disrupt the business every day, all day long. We do things that are so super creative that we find things that the rest of the world would find um, from their external attackers. We hate actually finding those things out externally. We want to find them out before they're actually discovered in the wrong way. And so we're constantly working on those things. But that means we're extremely surprising. So if you can imagine, you go through this exercise, we actually hack our own stuff all the time. And the day after, we have to deliver that message to our executives. They hate that. They don't want to be surprised. They want to have more consistency. And ultimately, it's solving for that. It's your conversation. It's how you actually put things together. And so it's rough. I can't say that there's going to be one prescribed way. But ultimately, the things that we want, the way in which we want to be creative, because by the way, cl the cloud, software-defined environments, the way in which we can actually move to get to customer outcomes, A-B testing, where you might have one path or another, experimentation, we're solving for more customer needs. If you're working in an H1, you still have those things. You still have experiments that happen. In emerging capabilities, you have many more of them. But ultimately, you have the same fabric across your company, and you've got to find a way to have the dialogue. And that means that having leadership, both at the top level and at the bottom of your organization, that leadership chain has to understand how to talk to each other, which is why we talked about the Phoenix Project, because establishing the communication, establishing the language is very, very critical. When I come... Oh, please. Jeannie, have you got... Yeah. Hi there. Um, my name's Scott. I'm from IBM Security. I'm sorry. Can you speak up? Sorry. I'm uh, from IBM Security. Scott McAvoy. A um, couple of things. I was just thinking, do you... With regard to your comment about the growing lack of security professionals, uh, do you see DevSecOps as something that can alleviate that? Or do you think that DevSecOps will be, be um, held back by that? And also, you're talking about different ways of making decisions, um, kind of leaning towards holacracy-type things, which have not gone great for some people. So how do you see that going forward in a more kind of fundamental way? Yeah, that's actually two great questions. So the first question is, 
Do you think that DevSecOps is going to get stunted by um, the lack of security professionals? And I would tell you absolutely not. What I've found is that you have to hire differently for DevSecOps. So I hire a third early practitioners, people who don't necessarily have any skills, and I bring them forward. Um, I hire folks that are kind of in their middle of their career, and then I hire folks that are more experts. And by hiring that into my ecosystem in that fashion, I'm able to um, bring up a new crop of people who can do things that didn't actually exist in the environment. And we've got to find a way as practitioners to believe that those folks are going to be able to produce the things we need. By the way, on average, when I pull in new and early career, I get outcomes so much faster. It's sped up my organization to the point where we had the slowest organization before, the security group, and now we're the fastest, which means my hiring process has actually worked. And starting to fold those people together really does make it easier for folks to learn and, and treat that as a byproduct. I also believe that we're in an early part of the security journey with DevSecOps, which means we actually have the opportunity to bring many more people to it because it's new and emerging. And this is a time when we can actually go out and recruit people that would be non-obvious to us for that type of practice. So we're doing things like going out to um, different types of conferences. We're pulling in diversity. We're finding ways in which to do things do new and revolutionary. And um, that's really impart important because we need many more creative thinkers in DevSecOps. If you understand abuse cases and attacks, it's really awesome. If you don't, it's awesome too. It's kind of a really cool thing because it's a learning ecosystem and it's meant to be that way. Experimentation. I am, by, by um, schooling, I'm a biologist. That's kind of crazy, right? I dropped out of school, went back, and got my bio degree. And that's really intentional because I am absolutely interested in scientific information and data. Applying science to this has a lot of benefits. I think the second thing that you... Can, can I get yeah, go to ahead. jump in on that? Yeah, just on the, on the skills side, so I don't think we've got the luxury necessarily of hiring. So I've, I've spent the last year with a huge emphasis on reskilling an existing organization because I just don't think I could hire the number of people that I need. Uh, but a, a piece of it is about how do I achieve scale? And I achieve scale by getting people to stop doing hand-cranked operations work and to start being software engineers. And if I can get them to start being software engineers and using the tools and practices of software engineers, I can achieve greater scale. And yeah, that can give me cost efficiencies, but it can also help me address skills shortages. So if, if I can operate at scale for the security piece of it, the skills shortages that there might be across the security industry become less acute to me but there's a couple of other things at play at the moment at the same time. So if I look at what do I get in security terms from using a public cloud, then you know, if we think about this in terms of economics and social benefit, the social benefit that I get from using the cloud that's already been secured by one of the hyperscale folk and their amazing security teams is giving me an environment where although there's a shared responsibility model there, they've taken their share and I don't have to worry about that anymore. So I'm not having to staff that piece. The other thing is platform as a service. 
And so, you know, we could have in the past been talking about bolting on security or building in security. And that leads to something that I call the audit paradox because we've favored bolt-on solutions because they're easy to audit because they've got their own set of configuration, their own priesthood normally installing and configuring them. And you know, that separation of concerns is very straightforward. But it's, it's kind of driven us down the wrong path because just about all security professionals will say it's better to build it in from the start. It's just a nightmare to actually measure that. Now, what's happening with platform as a service is what we could call bolting in, that the people building the platforms and the people building the frameworks that we run on those platforms have also been paying attention to security. And it's like the same thing as we've seen with the cloud. So a concentrated group of really good security professionals can create something that provides social benefit across an enormous community. So again, I'm getting scale out of a smaller number of, a number of people. Yeah, so I think your second question was on holacracy and you know, what kind of environment do you create and holacracy not being the best way in which to organize a company. Um, there are a few who have done the holacracy thing and it's actually worked really well for them. I, w I would say that I would hope that they would be less unicorns and that becomes the way in which we actually get things done in the future. But right now, where we are, again, going back, we get schooled into this way of working. Right? So it's hard to break when your schooling system actually makes it so that everything is top-down organized and you rise up through some level of predetermined capability. And so um, what I would say is you can create an environment where you can bring the, the top-down and the bottom-up together. You absolutely can. And you can do that in a way where it actually fits into traditional business absolutely fine. It's all about bringing decisions to a decision table. And we all talk about having a seat at the table. Today's seat at the table requires you to have facts and data. It's that simple. You're solving a customer problem. When you pull that on-down cord, you better have some data. I hate when it gets pulled and there's no data and it's only subjective and opinionative. Because that, to me, means that you don't necessarily have the ability to pull that on-down cord and be reliable. So the next time you go to pull it, you're probably not going to be a trusted, reliable, credible person to be sitting at the table talking about the decision for the business. So I ultimately think it's about creating the decision table and bringing both together to be able to make those decisions. Over time, what you're going to find is that your executives come to rely on the people that pull that cord, that come with the data, that make it so that they can understand and learn from those decisions, and ultimately the recommendation that comes to bear. So it's a really unique and interesting thing. It doesn't necessarily have to be holacracy, but that decision table has to be re-reconciled. Okay. So one of the things I love about a more data-driven decision-making environment is it, it takes the politics out of decision-making. But as a senior manager, for me, it's brilliant because I can't make wrong decisions. I can only make decisions that turned out to be based upon you know, insufficient data or a bad model. Can I quote you on that? It's yeah. impossible for you to make wrong decisions. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> and, and actually, I welcome people bringing better data or better models or both because that's just improving the overall outcome for the organization. So you don't find yourself becoming kind of attached to stuff because of an opinion. You can just create an environment where you know, the data wins. 
There's, I, a, there's a fabulous book on something called Decision Quality. If you haven't read it, you should. Um, it's an amazing book that talks about exactly that. You know, the facts that we bring to the table, the way in which we actually look at that quality is really essential. But the, the other thing, kind of going back to the education piece, is uh, something I say at the start of the infrastructure boot camps that we do is, I want you to cheat like crazy. I want you to copy other people's stuff. Uh, I want you to take everything that you possibly can, every shortcut that you can. And it's like, when you've got people that have been through a lifetime of traditional education and they've been told you can't copy and you can't cheat, it's kind of, well, that's, that's just inefficient. And, and it's kind of, you know, it might work for the purpose of testing people as they go through these batch processes in our school factories and doing their exams at the end. But that's not how we want people to behave in a collaborative workplace. And so I, I do explicitly say that I want people to cheat like crazy because you know, it's giving them that permission, giving them the empowerment to start changing their behaviors. And you know, I look at how we're now using things like collaborative source control, which is at the heart of what we're doing with DevSecOps. And, and it's kind of the whole point of it being there is not to version control the code. The whole point of it being there is to allow people to cheat like crazy by borrowing other people's stuff. And that makes them more efficient and delivers more effective outcomes for the organization. We're going to have to tie it up here. So I'm going to give you each one minute. All right? And what I'd like to know, I know when I come to these sessions, I want to walk out of here with something I can do. What am I going to do tomorrow based upon what these guys are saying? So in one minute, Chris, to start, what's the most high-impact, easiest thing that this audience could do tomorrow to make a change along the way we've been talking about? I was talking to a CIO recently, and he was like, how do I begin this journey? And I said, the next time that you've got somebody doing yak shaving, like doing this just mundane work, and taking however long it takes, get them to build something repeatable instead. Make something that can be shared with the next person that was going to have to shave a yak. And it's like, I don't care how much extra percent time it takes because you're going to save so much more later on. It's interesting. When I was programming in Perl in a, in a different lifetime, Randall Schwartz said the same thing. He said, if I have to do something twice, I've done it one time too many. That's same, I, I like that idea. I, I would say the number one thing is read and share. I mean, as a security practitioner, we don't share enough, and we don't actually organize around a community. I would say change that one thing because all of a sudden, as security practitioners, we become the way forward, not the way to stop. Um, alternatively, if you're in a different part of the organization, you're operating, you're doing other things, Find the people who are sounding like us, who are looking to create change, because uniting with them and figuring out ways in which to experiment is really the way forward. Great, thank you. Now, if you like what you heard with uh, Chris and Shannon today, I've actually done extended interviews with them about how they got where they are. What was their path to DevOps? It's called the innovator's journey. If you go to sonotype.com, and there'll be an innovators column, and I've got uh, Chris and Shannon on there, so you can listen to them talk about their journey, 
and it's all transcribed too so that you can read it. The other things that we can do here to help out is if you would like a recording of what we did today, I had Michael turn on the recorder for us. Just send me an email, and I'll get you the recording of what we just talked about. Send it to M. Miller, as in Mark Miller, M. Miller at sonatype.com, and I'll get you, I'll point you to the recording. And the final thing that we can do to extend this discussion, and these two are in on it too, on November 15th, we're doing something called All Day DevOps. And you can go to alldaydevops.com. It's 15 time zones, 15 hours of content with three simultaneous tracks live from around the world. It's all DevOps all day. And we're very excited about that. So if you'd like to jump in and, and see what we're doing, that's alldaydevops.com. Anything else you guys want to do to tie it up? If you want to share your security story, yeah. please feel free to reach out to me as well, Shannon at devsecops.org. And uh, we're really interested in finding more practitioners who are experimenting, who want to learn, and also want to spread the word. I'm done. <laughs> Good. Thank you for coming. Thanks for sitting through. Thank you. You have been listening to OWASP 24-7 with your host, Mark Miller, and music provided by the George Cole Quintet. With support from Sonatype Nexus, providing automation and scale to open source component security. Additional support provided by CatScan from Proactive Risk. Mm-hmm.